Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. This week, I'm going to talk to somebody who is the epitome of versatile. When you consider that he can call anything, host anything, there are a lot of great broadcasters that have the ability to call football and basketball. How about football, basketball, baseball, hockey, golf, tennis, horse racing? I don't know, the Indy 500? It's Mike Tirico. Now, Mike is somebody who entered into golf at the same time that Tiger Woods' career was taking off professionally. So his timing was good. But I've seen a lot of great broadcasters try to enter into golf, and it just didn't work. There's something about the language. There's something about the cadence that just doesn't jive with certain broadcasters. Not him. He can do anything and has. And now he is really the lead voice when it comes to NBC Sports, when it comes to so many of their properties. And starting this season on a full-time basis on Football Night in America on Sunday Night Football alongside Chris Collinsworth. But he will be hosting the U.S. Open at Brookline. So a lot of golf and a lot of other stuff with the most versatile guy in broadcasting, Mike Tirico. We welcome in Mike Tirico. Mike, my friend, how are you? Gary, it is good to see you, man. I'm uh, I'm doing great, hitting the uh, the heavy time of the golf season for us. So really excited about that, and uh, just catching our breath a little bit too before football gets rolling. So it's a wonderful time of the year. You know, I, it's so funny in the world that we now live in. I have become really curious about how people curate their backdrops. I, I get, I, I, but but with you, because I was talking in the open about your versatility, you could put every ball, every stick in the background and be applicable uh, to, to your range of work. And and I got to ask you, because I want to know sure. where it started. Where did where did the kid from, from Bayside High go, I want to do this? Yeah, you know, Gary, I, I don't know if it's uh, somewhere between being young and loving sports and having a house where sports was always on TV and enjoying the great dream of being in all these places and doing these events. I mean, our house stopped at 4.30 in the afternoon on Saturdays because that was the time for ABC's Wide World of Sports. It was only 90 minutes. There was no ESPN. There was no cable TV. There's no YouTube channels. So your only chance to see what the world of sports was was this curated view of uh, Chris Schenkel and Keith Jackson and, of course, Jim McKay. And when you think of those guys and Jack Whitaker, and obviously Al Michaels was a part of it in some way, shape, and form as well. When you think of those guys, they broadcast everything. So that plus growing up in New York and watching Marv Albert do the local sports on WNBC-TV, the NBC station in town, and be the voice of the Knicks and the Rangers, all of that were the influences on a guy who wanted to be a part of sports, but knew I was never going to be a great athlete to do everything, to have a little bit of a, I guess, ability to broadcast a whole bunch of different sports. And when you think of, I mentioned Al before, who's done obviously the hockey with the, do you believe in miracles and basketball and football and baseball. And you think of Jim Nance and you think of that group of guys that you know, those are the influences for me growing up or getting in the industry we weren't specialists in just one sport. So 
that's where I've always loved to have the variety and the variety keeps me going. I am uh, a guy who loves to have the next opportunity and the next challenge. And uh, it's a great excuse, as you know, to be able to say, Hey, I've got to watch this because if you cover a lot, you can watch a lot. <laughs> it's so true. You know, you and I were born in the same year. You grew up in Queens. I was on the Jersey side in Ridgewood. My mom grew up in Maspeth. So I have uncles who, who just, they, they were born into to the culture of, of the Mets when they were born in yep. the early 60s. Uh, the Jets, my uncle, yep. who's a New York City firefighter, had, had seats second to last row at Shea Stadium. But I'm on the Jersey side, so I'm a, I'm a Yankee fan, I'm a Giant fan. Sure. But, but and, and for you, it's, it's one thing to have all the teams was there something early on that, that in watching, because I was like you, I watched everything, that you went, God, I think I have the intuition. I think I have the knack to do this. Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you there was a moment or something, but my mom tells me, even as a kid, I always liked when the sportscasters were on. I would ask questions about that. <laughs> and a true story is my grandfather worked as uh, his second job, a security officer, at Shea Stadium, where the Mets and Jets played. And he would bring me home media guides from the broadcasters because he knew I was interested in stats and scores and all that as a little kid, right? So I, I wanted to do this. And that just got even deeper into my desire to do this. And then when I would be able to go to a game and wait for him after a game, uh, I didn't care about meeting the players. I wanted to meet the broadcasters. So this was always what I wanted to do. And I feel very fortunate now as we have kids who go through their teenage years and into college and so many friends, uh, there are more and more people who aren't sure what they want to do. And that's great because there are so many options now, uh, not just in media, but you can major in one thing and pivot to something else and learn a skill. Uh, for, for us, I've just felt very fortunate that right away I knew what I wanted to do, wrote for the high school newspaper, did all the media related stuff we could which was limited at a New York City public school. But th this was a dream as a kid. And it, I, Gary, I think, I'm sure you feel the same way too. I think that's what keeps us youthfully enthused about sports, even as we're in our 50s and covering it, because we still love it. I still love watching games and competition and broadcasts and how do we learn? How do we get better? How do we evolve? And for me, that's what the, the connection is right now. Uh, it goes back to the same things I fell in love with as I was a kid. Mike, when you got to Syracuse, you're around other kids who had the same aspirations, specifically in broadcast journalism. Um, did you did you ever have a crisis of confidence? Did you ever say, my gosh, huh. this is the deep end of the pool here? Well, when I got there as a freshman, just leaving as seniors, so they leave in May and June and we show up in September, Greg Papa, the longtime voice of many Bay Area sports teams, the Warriors, the Raiders, uh, when they were out there, now the voice of the 49ers, and Sean McDonough, who obviously has done so many great things in many sports, including golf. And I know you know, Sean, through your friendship with Jay Billis. So, I mean, those two guys went right to the pros. They left college, and Papa was hired by the Indiana Pacers to be the voice of the Pacers. And McDonough goes to TV 38, which was a super station out of Boston back then. And he becomes the studio host of the Bruins and evolves into doing a lot of Boston sports. As a matter of fact, I met Sean McDonough in September of 1984. I was new on campus. 
McDonough just finished being the voice of the AAA baseball team in Syracuse at that time affiliated with the Toronto Blue Jays. And Sean got the job in Boston. And I'm up at the college radio station. I'm only there a few weeks. Hey, McDonough just got a job in Boston. We're going to go help him move. And that is, Sean had no idea who I was. I was just one of the freshman kids at the radio station. We helped Sean McDonough move out of his place in Syracuse and head to Boston. <laughs> That's almost 38 years ago. So, uh, yes, there was a crisis of confidence because, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be ready in three years to go be the voice of the Pacers or host the Bruins on TV. Uh, and subsequent to that, people like Dan Horde, who's the voice of the Bengals and the Cincinnati Bearcats. Uh, you watch an NFL film's highlight of Joe Burrow, Dan Horde's voice is on it. He's been there for a couple of decades. Uh, we've had people who are a voice of Virginia Tech, local sportscasters in Houston for 20-plus years, local TV guys in Boston, all my contemporaries. And then you have people like Ian Eagle, Dave Pash, who are all right there with behind me. Uh, and I'm just touching, touching a, a few of the people who are there. Uh, the tradition has continued on through guys like Jason Benetti and all the way through. So a lot of sportscasters came through. And I think the fact that we were all there and a lot of us wanted to do this uh, helped make us better and gave us competition in college at 18, 19 and 20. And that's still true with the kids who go back to school. I stay pretty involved with uh, with Syracuse. And I see that and I'm heartened by the fact that as much thing, as much as things change four decades later, it's still the same way to get yourself on the air on the college station, call Syracuse games, and then be ready for the next step if the big leagues call. Yeah, you know, it, to, to me, I was having this conversation with someone you're very fond of, Julie Inkster, this past weekend at the U.S. Women's Open, and, and, and various ways that you define greatness. And, and part of greatness to me is, is longevity, being great early and sustaining it. And, and like Sean, Sean did the World Series at 32. He's going to do the Stanley Cup Finals this year. Yes. And, yes, and, right. and also another thing about greatness is range to me. And to me, you have the greatest of range of anybody of this particular generation. I think I've told you this before. My greatest Tariko trifecta was a, was a Virginia Tech Thursday night game that you did. Then you did Lakers in L.A. on a Friday night, and you were at Disney on Saturday afternoon calling golf. <laughs> I love that trifecta. Is there one better than that? Uh, there was one where I did a Thursday night Thanksgiving football game, did a Friday afternoon football game, Colorado, Nebraska, uh, and then Saturday we were doing the Skins game. So I, I, that, that, that was the one that was just – it was on the hairy edge, and it's – one of those, wait, we got off the air Thursday night at 11 o'clock at Morgantown, and then Saturday at noon, we're, we're out doing Skins game uh, out in the desert in California. So there have been some hairy ones, but some some fun ones over the years. I love it. You know, Gary, what, what, during football, I was doing ABC football on a Saturday, and uh, there was one Saturday, Michigan played Michigan State, a very famous triple overtime game in football, and I couldn't get out Saturday night because the game went so long. So we had a we had a Sunday tour event in Greensboro that was during the week, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday on USA Network, Sunday only on ABC. This is when the fall season was still part of the one continuous calendar year. And um, I landed at the airport, went to the golf course, called the event, went back to the airport and left. <laughs> I felt really bad, but it was just because the football ran long. So that, that's fun. Those are the fun things. Those are the good challenges along the way. Uh, but, you know, you want to make sure if you're ever going to do that, you don't shortchange the audience. 
And to me, that's the most important part. And I think that's where technology has helped us because we can watch and see more things than ever before. You can be on the air uh, doing something of different sport and miss the final round of a tour event. Mm -hmm. You can come back and watch it now. You can, you can watch it online. You can watch it on demand. So I think that in some ways has made our job easier to do a good job, but it's also made it harder because the amount of time you really have to keep putting in, okay, let me make sure I go back and watch these three hours. Uh, I happened to be, you know, moved my daughter out of college yesterday. So I didn't get a chance to sit and watch Billy Horschel kind of try to hold it together for the first 10 or 11, 12 holes and then make an Eagle. Right. And just really kind of kickstart that close to be able to finish comfortably and win. When you see them live, you kind of remember them forever, right? When you don't, you've got to go back and do the work. So that's part of the job that people don't see. And that's good. You know, no, nobody ever asks, man, how many hours did, did the greenskeeper and his staff work to make this golf course look perfect? You just say, Wow, it's a beautiful golf course. Mm. So nobody ever asks about the behind the scenes, unseen hours that you put in. This is especially now a society that's judged on final product. And that's my, I, I think it's it's my biggest uh, battle right now is to make sure that your preparation for the final product doesn't slip as you do so many things. When you um, you had already shown in the, in the early to mid 90s that you could do anything, and when they come to you about golf, and I was doing local radio in Charlotte at the time, but I had a background in golf, and, and I was, you know, like you, I'm into the broadcasters. Uh, look, I'm a Summerall guy. Uh, and Enberg <laughs> had, and, and, and NBC had taken over uh, the, the U.S. Open package, the USGA yeah. package in 95 at Shinnecock. So naturally, there's Enberg. And he, I mean, who else could you slide into that chair that would be better suited? But it, as you know... It's so particular. There's a cadence. There, there is a language and a nomenclature to the game of golf that can, that can spit out some great broadcasters who just don't find the comfort. How did you find right. it? And did you have any misgivings about doing it before you made the decision to say, yeah, I'll do it? Yeah, so I'll give you uh, two stories here. I'll, I'll do the first one quick. <clears throat> so it's the early 90s. I've been at ESPN for about five years doing Sports Center and branching out to do some college basketball here and there little bit of college football, some of the studio work as well. But I really wanted to get back to being a play-by-play -play announcer. That's what I had hoped to do. But you never turned down a chance to get a network gig, and ESPN came calling for SportsCenter. So it's in the mid-'90s, and I had gone to our boss and said, I'd love for an opportunity to do some things. Parallel to that, Jim Kelly, who really helped make the then-senior tour, now PGA Tour champions, uh, was also covering the – America's Cup yacht races, which has fallen off the radar, but at a time there huge. in the 80s and 90s was huge. Exactly, Gary, you know that. So, so Jim was working the America's Cup in San Diego. So there were some of the PGA Senior Tour events he couldn't make. So my boss said, hey, you can go out and observe one, and then you can do a couple, right? And I got to work with Andy North, Gary Koch, Bob Murphy, Jim Colbert. I mean, to this day, North and Coke remain friends. And I count those two specifically incredibly responsible for me, uh, one, getting an opportunity to do golf in 97. And then secondly, and more importantly, not falling flat on my face when I did it. So that was one part of the setup. The other part is Brett Musburger was doing ABC's golf. 
And as you said, you know, even great sportscasters, if, if you don't know the game or don't speak it, sometimes it is a little bit t- tough. And I've always felt, Gary, that golf viewers are in large part golf course members and club members, and they have a demanding desire for things to be done the right way. And if not, they're more likely to express it, which is fine. It, it, it just you don't know that going in. And I think if I would have known that going in, I would have had a lot more trepidation when that boss from ESPN moves to ABC, a gentleman named Steve Anderson, uh, whose dad, Dave Anderson, was one of the great writers in the history of journalism. And Steve said, okay, how about you come in and come work at ABC and do the golf? And that was my first chance to get a network gig. And you're not going to say no to that, but it's following Brent. Uh, But Jack Graham was the producer. Jim Jeanette was the director, two rock-solid people who have come through the u.s open over time and i got a chance to work with curtis strange and steve melnick and god rest his soul bob rosberg and judy rankin among others i'm just kind of touching the surface there so i really fell into an all-star cast right away and um and the, the last I'm, I'm piling stories on here but the last one i'll give you is we're doing the tour championship in 97 at la costa that's my first abc event that is when tiger and Tom Lehman on a rained out Sunday, play the par three. Lehman puts it in the water. Tiger hits it about here. Game over. And off we go to the 97 Tiger mania that leads up to after the two wins in 96. After he turned pro, it leads to the uh, the great Masters victory and all that in 97. So I'm doing that event and I get there and it's Tuesday, I guess. And we're going to watch the guys play practice round. And Curtis, come here, Curtis, get in the cart. I sit next to Curtis in the car. And I don't know, Curtis. I know this much that we had just met. And we go right backwards through the golf course and go meet everybody. Hey, say hi to Mike. He's our new guy. And it's Davis Love. And it's all the guys who were playing in the tour championship in 97 off the wins in 96. And uh, that acceptance right away, being with Curtis and his willingness to introduce me to every possible person out there helped give me a chance to get in here and, and get golf to a good start. And uh, that was part of my, part of my baptism in golf. And if it wasn't for that collection of great people in front of and behind the camera, uh, I I don't think I would have been able to be as accepted as I was early on by uh, golf viewers. Yeah. You know, Mike, I had Judy on last week and I told her you joined the 27 Yankees. I mean, when she, <laughs> when she, and this was, you know, early eighties for her and that, that yes. included Whitaker and included Dave Marr. And, and I mean, Peter Alice, who was, and, and again, still contributed. And I left out Peter. Was, yeah, exactly. Right. So it was, it, to me, that was, and I love CBS and I love Summerall. And of course, Nance comes along in 86, but I want to I want to talk about '99 at the Open because to me, Mike, that that week, if people just jog their memories a little bit, there was whispers of steroid use for the first time that week, that's, and and that's... and I remember Paul Easinger said on your broadcast, steroids gonna not gonna help you make a three footer, and and then this was the oddest thing, John F. Kennedy's Jr. playing is lost Friday into Saturday. There is no social media. You are right. you are splitting your screen with the with with a, a plane going down the coastline around Martha's Vineyard and you're trying to call the open championship at Carnoustie, which hadn't had it since 75. Mike, and then you get the ending. It's one of the craziest weeks in televised golf history. 
it, it was Gary for a lot of reasons. And let's go back to the rogue uh, greenskeeper there who fertilized the rough and <laughs> six, eight yard wide landing areas with rough yay thick. And, you know, you kind of do that and they become tails that grow over time. No, no, the, the rough was legit. The, the landing areas were narrow. Uh, we knew it was going to be a difficult week. The weather was awful the entire week. It was such a bizarre week. You mentioned the the tragedy with JFK Jr. Friday night into Saturday. We're waiting to go on ABC and waiting and waiting and waiting. And, you know, a couple of the other networks were on live. And at that time, you're early in cable TV in the news world. So it was, hey, if the other networks are on, we're staying on. So ABC stays on. So then we eventually go to ESPN on Saturday. You mentioned the other stuff. Ton of things going on. So here's what I'll remember about Vandeveld. A bunch of things. First off, uh, he he made an obscene number of uh, amount of putts. If, if we had the old school, uh, the old school golf with the new school stats, yes, feet feet of putts made. Vandeveld will be off the charts. He made them from everywhere in the country on that week to get his lead. So he putts out on seventeen. And as we're setting it up, now Bob Rosberg is with the group. He can't get back to the tee. And one thing I learned from Rossi and Curtis when they were together, and they got along really well because Rossi was walking the fairways when Curtis won in 88 and 89. They was just kind of connected, right? Um, <clears throat> and the one thing I learned, and that's still true today, and I wish we did more of it in golf on TV, is golfers talking to golfers. When you got two guys who've been under pressure of a major – and it's coming down the stretch there or two women who've done it. They're nothing like hearing them talk about what's going on when they are honest about it. So Rossi can't get back to the tee because of where it is. And he's going to be in the landing area and he can't see what Vandeveld pulls out for a club. And Rossi right away, we're, I'm trying to set up the big moment here for France, for golf. Rossi goes, Curtis, don't tell me he's going to take driver here. Cause he had a driver everywhere. And Curtis, Rossi, he just did. And Rossi says, well, I don't know about that. And then it began. And Gary, Curtis and I sat and watched that for a Golf Channel piece. Uh, and I had only watched it back a couple of times. And we just kind of, it took us back to so many great memories. And Rossi was excellent. Yep. Curtis was amazing. Yep. Um, you know, Vanderbilt got some of the worst breaks in the history of the sport. That that golf ball goes into his second shot, goes into the grandstand or into the rough. He's like, it hits something about as wide as your arm. Right. And it takes the bounce back on the other side of the burn in the rough, thick rough into the burn. And we've seen the whole deal. Um, the one thing that nobody saw of that, that I'll share, is that Jim McKay worked that open with us. Got a chance to work three with Jim, 97, 99, and, and St. Andrews in 2000. And it was 18 to 20 minutes of, oh, my gosh, we're focused on this. We can't believe what's going on. <sighs> Take a breath. Now we're going to a playoff. We're going to break. And McKay walks over to us, walks over to me, taps me on the shoulder and says, you may never see anything like that again. And you did a good job. Wow. And I was like, I was like, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I don't care who wins the playoff. I'm going back to the States. I'm, I'm good. Uh, it was really, it was one of the most meaningful individual moments in my career uh, that Jim came over and said, but what a, 
you're right. What a, what a weekend that was. And that's why major championship golf is so dang cool. You just don't know. And you talk about it for years and years afterwards. Uh, you're, you're right. I went back and I watched all 23 minutes from <laughs> the tee shot to the putt made and, and your line before he made that six footer, you root against no one, you root for no one, but you got to hope this goes in. That yeah. was your line. I, I, and I, I was three years into being on network TV, two and a half, really. And I remember questioning myself for saying that, but I'm so glad I did because it was just, I was just kind of being genuine. I, I didn't care who, whoever wins these events, it doesn't change our lives one bit. You know, as you have become Gary, you become friendly with a lot of athletes and a lot of guys you cover and you you're happy to see some of the people who are, nice to you or treat you well or treat you politely you're happy to see them have success but it doesn't change what happens in gary williams life or jim nance's life or dan hicks's life it, not one not one drop uh, but it was just I, I just felt the humanity of it because i felt the guy in his biggest moment of his pro professional life was being embarrassed and you just hope that like if you if you like sports i like to root for the underdog and at that moment the guy who started the hole with a lead was the underdog because you just didn't want him to be this, you know, and what it's turned to be is an asterisk. Um, it, it's, it's always, it's always odd to see Paul Laurie. And I think of Paul Laurie and I said, well, he's the guy who won the open that Vandeveld lost. Yeah. Right. And, and it's just, it's unfair because Paul Laurie had a sensational day in the bad weather and hit a remarkable shot on the last hole of the playoff. Remarkable. The weather was so bad. Uh, yeah. It was, um, it was a really cool, cool moment and you never know uh when you're going to be in the middle of a moment and that's i think what uh, keeps all of us refreshed and energized about what we do professionally yeah you know and and you mentioned footnote um your good buddy justin leonard yep. really is kind of the footnote and and is the good trivia question uh of who is the other <laughs> member uh, of the playoff. I, I think of him in that. I think of who played with Annika when she played at Colonial the first two rounds. Everybody gets Dean Wilson. Nobody remembers Aaron Barber, but, but it's, it's... Good. You had me there. You had me there. That's a good one. Yeah, but but good Justin's one. the it. guy. Justin's the... He's the 99 footnote. No, no doubt. We've talked about that uh, more than a few times. And, uh, you know, the first major that I got to cover was that 97 Open, the first major I got to call at Royal Troon and Justin won that and uh, really excited uh, you know, this year, in addition to many things uh, with the 150th open and the open at St. Andrews is the 25th anniversary of, uh, of Justin's. And I always tell him that his first major was my first major. So <laughs> glad we could share that. And then we get to sit in the booth together every once in a while. And uh, over the last five or six years and do this and, um, that, that's a, a cool part of, uh, of the way golf works as well. No doubt. Okay, so I want to take you forward uh, to the big decision you make to, to leave ESPN sure. ABC. And I'm, I'm at Golf Channel, and, and I'm, I'm hearing that, that, you know, the courting is on, that this might happen. Uh, I see at the Masters, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is really – and, I'm, and I, I remember telling Molly, I said, he's the guy. He's the guy. Nobody can do more. He's the guy. That's She's nice. like, Gary, I know. That's why we're talking to him. I'm like, no, no, but, nice. but my endorsement's the one that matters. Come on now. Yeah, Molly. thank you. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Thank you, Gary. Yes, thank it, you, yeah, thank there you for it is. Nice golf shirt here. There it is. <laughs> but uh, what was, what, 
as you as you looked at the ledger and the tail of the tape, why ultimately did you make the decision? Sure. Uh, pretty simple. I had turned 50, 25 years at ESPN, <clears throat> 10 years of doing Monday Night Football. And I really thought it was the chance to write another chapter. And at ESPN, you know, now ESPN has the Stanley Cup final and the NBA finals. And Mike Green was doing that then. And Mike is awesome. I love him. He's one of my favorite people, in addition to being such a great broadcaster and a Hall of Famer. Uh, but the NFL package wasn't the same. There were no playoff games or just a wild card game at that point. Um, we we were losing the Open to NBC, so out of the major championship golf business, although they get back in with the early coverage of the PGA. And uh, it was just a chance with an opportunity to write another chapter, but to do it at a place where the events would also provide a great next chapter for me and that is the major championship golf it's the sunday night football coverage that has been you know because of many people before me put on a super high level of performance uh, not just the games but football night in america it's a regular voice in the world of golf with everything that golf channel does and the majors at nbc and obviously the olympic games uh you know knowing that Bob was there and I thought Bob was going to be there for longer than he yeah. stayed as the primetime host, but there were other day parts and just being a part of the Olympic games after having covered a world cup and covered other events, like, wow, here, here's a chance to do the biggest event in the world in sports, the Olympic games. So all of that, it just made sense. And then it was the people, um, you know, starting with Mark Lazarus, who was our boss at the time and has now moved up within uh, the NBC universal structure, but, Mark and Molly Solomon, who's uh, in charge of Golf Channel, as you mentioned, and now is our executive producer, president of our Olympic coverage, and on through Fred Gadelli and Tommy Roy, our golf producer, and all the there's so many great people, uh, and that was important because leaving ESPN was hard. It's unbelievable place. Twenty five years, uh, still many of my good friends, many of my good friends um, are ESPN on and off the off the air talent. But uh, this chance was really a cool one to uh, take another step forward. And I'm so thrilled I've done it. The last six and a half years have been amazing. The events to cover, uh, the two Olympic Games uh, in, during the pandemic, everything else that's gone with it, uh, the Sunday Night Football, Football Night in America, Triple Crown horse races, you know, see a, a Triple Crown one, uh, Indy 500, those types of events, those are things I never would have done. And it has helped me complete that part of my career uh, and uh, continue to be pushed by great people along the way. So I'm so thrilled. It wasn't an easy leap, but I'm really glad that I look back that I did it and have maintained those friendships with the folks who helped make me um, who I am professionally at ESPN. You know, Mike, you're it. And this is, you know, from a selfish standpoint, because it's golf, your first assignment's the open championship at Troon in 2016. And, and your research guy in golf was my research guy. He was my guy. Kevin Ryan and, yep. and Kevin told me the story of of day one. Phil shoots sixty two and a half. He shoots sixty three, <laughs> yeah. but he has a full, you know, three sixty lip out on on eighteen. And they they say to you, we need you to basically sum this up. And so as Kevin told me, and you, I want the fine details from you. But as he said to me, he said, okay, so they sit him down and they're saying, what do you need? What do you need? He said, I got it. I got it. Just, just, just tell me how much time I got it, 
And so you're, you're going you're gonna to get this whole highlight rip. You're going to go through the whole thing, and you're going to hit the post and go to break. And, and Kevin said, I sat there. He didn't need anything. He just started him, and it was flawless. And I'm thinking, hell yeah, it was. Um, it's nice. And yeah. I, I just, just, I mean, let, let's start with that. I mean, it, that, I mean Mike, you got to think to yourself, yeah, yeah, this is why I did this. <laughs> a little bit, for sure, uh, especially not missing an open, you know, which I ended up missing last year because of the Olympics and the travel was too tough. But uh, I had been a part of the open when it was the British Open and then the Open Championship and now the Open <laughs> since since I'm 97. As I mentioned, I just love that event. I love, love, love that event um, for so many different reasons. And the chance to uh, to be there for a little bit of history and the major championship history, potentially uh, with that lip out with Phil and for it to be Phil and having having gone back years before. And I forget what open it was, but Bones and Phil are out playing a practice round. And Phil was just, you know, as he can be honest to a fault. He's like, I don't I think I'll ever win this major. You know, I play the game in the air. It's game on the ground. It's too hard for me. And, you know, my my Pell's nine iron is different than, you know, what's here. It's all all of that. Yes. Right. And that's why it was so gratifying to watch him finally figure it out and win one. And then we thought we'd get him here, you know, in in uh, in, in this situation, setting a setting a record as well uh, for a 62. But but that's just being around it for a while. As you know, you know, if, if I prop you up and I ask you for uh for 10 minutes on a little bit of ACC basketball history, right? You're, you're right. Your wheelhouse, right. Or, um, or, or we're talking major championship golf and the close calls, things like that. You, you just live it often enough and you love it too. I, I think the fact that not only do you go through it every day, but you, you love it. You're passionate about it. You know, I, I got back yesterday from a, from a, a long weekend and I, ran out to the golf course at six 30 to hit balls for a half hour because I can't stand the way I'm hitting my, my irons. I'm not good. My index is like 13. Now it got down to 10.2 in the pandemic. And I was really excited. I thought like, okay, we're going to get it in under 10 just at some point in my life. And then work is kicked back in and life is kicked back in. And, uh, yeah, man, I'd like to go back where I play every, play golf every day. You get really good, really quick, right? Your <laughs> short game is sharp as ever, but I, I just love it. I, I love the sport, and uh, I think those those feelings for it help in situations like that where you know, you're sitting on history and you're living every shot with the golfers because you want to be able to re recall it at some point. But, but there's something else that I thought um, kind of went into that particular moment because Howard Cosell used to do the Sports Minute, and you yeah. did it. You did it. And and the story was that Cosell never wanted to know, you know, I, don't give me a 10 count. I got this. You know, and he, he'd hit the post. Um, and in having that type of ability, um, whether it's innate, whether it is learned, um, there is there's something about it. But then you add the passion for the subject matter. You're not you're not talking about. The tax code. You're talking about something that has meant so much to you since you were a kid. You put all that in the pot, and what comes out is is you know something that tastes delicious. <laughs> well, thanks. I you know it, it's funny. My, my wife always laughs at me with our sense of timing. I say, um, I'll be there in three minutes. Like nobody <laughs> says. He said I'll be there in five, or I'll be there in a minute. But like you know this, and for the people who aren't watching, who are broadcasters, you know. 
the difference between two minutes and two and a half minutes is a lot. It's a lot for us. Give us 30 more seconds. We can, we can, we can feel like we you've given us gold. Right. So that, that, that's a little bit of a part of it. I think for all of us, but uh, you know, you know, Gary, I think we live in a time because of social media and all the other things that we can discuss that being authentic is really visible to people. And if you don't love where you are, then I think people see that. So hopefully they can sense that I do like to be on the on the on the front stretch there at Indy or on the track at the Derby right around our set at turn one when we come on the air and the twin spires are behind us. Like those are those are still cool things for me. And hopefully the viewers can appreciate that. Just like when they watch their their, their golf. You know, when when you watch somebody who you know loves the game, and you know, like Justin Thomas has now fallen in love with hitting shots mm. not not playing golf but hitting shots right and that that connects you as a golfer because if you've been somewhere and you have to hit a hook and you don't you don't turn the ball over right to left right that's hard and when you watch somebody do that and really appreciate it that's an authenticity that you can't fake and fool and hopefully uh like it does with you and your love of the game hopefully it comes through for all of us who broadcast this sport yeah, by the way, that guy will do television. He's actually already done a little bit. He did he's the good. match. He's good, and he he's was, a geek. He's a total geek. Yes, talk to yes. rules officials. Nobody will talk to them more about the rules. Like you said, he 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 likes to hit shots. Um, he watches golf. He's a geek. He'll do television. He There's an inevitability he's, to that. <laughs> he would be one of the – it's funny because we always think about that. Who, who are the guys who are playing right now who would be really good, right, on, on the air? And um, – you know, I I think Tiger would be great. Yes, I do. Because I, so so people always ask Gary. I'm sure you get this a lot. Who's your favorite interview? Who do you like to talk to? And you know, you can you can say, oh gosh, sitting down with Jack is great, and sitting down with anybody is terrific, right? The best interviews, and for us in football, the production meetings, very often are the best players, because they've taken incredible physical ability and added a mental component to it that helps them maximize amongst elite athletes. You know, all these guys are the best in the world. All these women are the best in the world, but their ability to mentally get an edge against another elite athlete helps the goods become the greats. Mm -hmm. And when they can express it and when they're willing to express it, um, it's the most fascinating thing. And that's, that's what I think about Brady about Manning, about all those players we've we've talked about over the years. That's why, like, Steve Kerr was an exceptional player as a role player, right? He wasn't Jordan, but he was unbelievable at his job. He became an elite announcer, and his ability to communicate all of that has made him into one of the great head coaches of all time. So to me, that's, that's what fascinates me, and you're dead on. Like, Justin Thomas would be sensational in the booth. Jordan Spieth is an on-course reporter as yes, it is. Yes, he is. Because he talks you through every shot, right? So can you, so can you imagine that mind now 
processing for a whole field and watching a golf tournament. I, I just, those guys to me would be really, really good at doing this. Yeah, I, I think Jordan would probably expire. I, I mean, I don't know. He emotes so much about his own commitment to every shot. I don't know how he could manage being that invested in everybody else's. But you're right. I mean, I, no, he, he's, he's great television. You mentioned, Tiger, 2019, you do the radio side at Augusta National. <laughs> I walked out behind you from the media center after his presser when he won, and you were chatting with him. Uh, I walked with him that whole round. I've told this story yeah. a few times. Uh, because of what the day wound up being, early start, split tees, the most unusual circumstance ever at Augusta National. He's with right. Molinari and, and Finau, 9.30, and, and Ben Dawn had done the early live from, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm going to drive back to Orlando. Now, Ben Dawn's a great producer. He's now over live golfer, and, and you know Ben very well. Yeah. And I said, yeah. don't leave, don't leave. I said, walk with you. me. Walk with me four holes. And he goes, no, no, I just want to drive back. I'm like, come on. So he walks with me. And Tiger bogeys four and five, and, I, and, he, and, he, and he's like, I'm leaving. I said, don't leave. I don't know that he's going to win, but don't leave. Good he didn't you. leave. We walked every step you. of all 70 blows. And I've got a little book with every shot, time stamp, oh, so wind direction, cool. relation to par, everything. But you called oh. it. You called it. What was different about the radio experience mm -hmm of calling like a lunar eclipse with all yeah. the confluence of the generation he spawned and then everything, everybody kind of, you know, falling away. And there he, there he's the lone survivor. What was that like? Same, same thing. Multiple stories. Uh, I'll get through the first one real quick. I'm there only, only by strange, strange circumstance. Howie Denneroff is the executive producer of Westwood one, which had the radio yep. rights at that point for Augusta. And Howie and I went to summer camp together in Queens, New York, <laughs> and have known each other forever as we've gone through the industry, right? And rarely, if ever, worked together. I did a couple of football games for him over the last few years, so we reconnected. But we'd see each other at every Monday night game for the decade I was doing uh, M&F. Bob Papa, who had done years of the Masters on the radio, yep. Bob has a – now, Bob's at this point, his Golf Channel portfolio is increasing as including becoming the voice of college golf, which culminates with the NCAA championship. So there's a big tournament out of Paso Tiempo. Starts on Monday. He's got to be out there on Sunday because, as you know, the day before you have to be on site to you go through a rehearsal and all that. Uh, so so Bob Bob can't do the Masters. So Howie asks if I would do it. Uh, the club is happy with it. Golf Channel let me do it after I got off the air from Live From. I hadn't done golf on the radio, but I've listened to PGA Tour radio a whole bunch. I, I love – Love the concert. I heard golf on the radio going back to the British Open oh, back yeah. in those days in the 90s. Yeah. BBC has carried it for years and years. And I was fascinated to hear how they did it. That was the first time I went over. Wow, it's pretty good. You yeah. can follow this. So so we're there and we're, and we're doing the Masters. And as you said, the schedule's all screwed up because of the weather. And we're going to do this early finish on Sunday and all of that. And you are calling the Masters on radio in what really is the equivalent of a human aquarium. You're under a camera tower <laughs> to the players left of 18. You're about yay high, a couple of feet off the ground, three steps up, and you are surrounded by plexiglass for sound and also, you know, security and safety. So really you get people who come by and they kind of, they knock on the window. <laughs> like, hi, I see. I sit there with Charlie Reimer, who, you know, is engaging yes. <laughs> like any good, any good aquarium resident would <laughs> engaging with the folks as they come by. <clears throat> So you're really in this odd place where everybody can hear you, but you don't want to be heard by the golfers who are 20 steps away 
the left edge of the of the green at 18. But you're watching on a monitor. You have a scoring computer, very tight, confined area. Charlie made it even tighter and more confined. But Gary, as you're walking around with Ben Don, watching every shot of Tiger, we're watching it on the screen, and then we're waiting for the numbers to change on the iconic scoreboard. And wow. the roars, because they, they wait till players put out on 18. So a lot of my memory of that week, of that day, is the roars of the crowd when they would see a number, like, do you have a blank? panel if you think of that iconic augusta scoreboard you get a blank panel there's a white blank panel with nothing in there and then you see it go away because somebody's gonna put the new number in and it was almost as if people were anticipating and then when the disasters were happening at 12 a number would go up oh and then tiger's pargo oh and then as he's moving around 13 14 15 16 those roars, every time somebody puts out an 18, their attention immediately goes to the board to look to see what's going to happen with Tiger. And they know that they're in a place where history is about to come their way, right? And the Tiger doesn't play a great 18th hole, as you know. No. Uh, it got scratchy there for a little bit. Uh, but I've never heard Augusta National, and no, not a ton of time, but it's 20-some-odd years of going. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that place like that because it wasn't the polite applause which is really hearty applause which has a few go get a few cheers it was a roar it was a pure roar and um everybody there kind of knew the history going on and to be there and be a part of it and to hear it and just to see tiger walk up that same spot where he hugged his dad and have charlie wait for him that was just that, that was one of the cooler, cooler things. And I thought what was um, unfortunate personally is that I couldn't soak it in because I was trying to describe it. Because I tried to remember the whole time. I do remember thinking, <clears throat> as Charlie was talking, and Tiger's walking up 18, <clears throat> excuse me, describe what you're seeing because it's on the radio. Now, you can lay out, but the scene was so good. Tiger fist pumping, hugging Joey. Like his look at the crowd, the big clenched fist the walk where he was walking and all of that. Like if you're driving in a car, you needed to know why it was so special. And man, that was so uh, cool to be a part of. And just to have that angle of being able to watch him put out, watch him walk up, watch the 18th green, watch him put out, watch the emotion. It was just like, it just kind of moved across our vision the whole time. And then to the left, be able to see that runway up where the CBS cameras are always waiting for that great shot. Uh, to see that I, I'm with you. That's one of those days you kind of, uh, when you see a highlight go by, you go, man, I, I got to not only be there, but I got to talk about it and describe it. And I have, you have your notebook, you know, I've got somewhere, I, I've got the link to the audio of it that, uh, that I'll have forever. That's really um, a neat experience in the history of the game and what an honor to be a part of. You know, the sure. other thing, Mike, about Augusta, they're very particular about certain things and I hope they never change. Um, and one of them is the solid, the solitude of the experience of being inside the rope as, as, mm -hmm. as a player and as a caddy. This is mm -hmm. it's very different from all the other majors where you have this phalanx of, of, of security and media and these hordes of people that are not there, not there. And I got behind the 18th green and I looked at my watch. 18 minutes later, I moved because of the necessity to hold that rope line to get right. him to scoring. And then beyond that, keeping it very civilized to get people, you know, going in the direction 
toward toward the exits. Uh, no, it, it, it's a singular experience. A couple it more is. things before I, sure. I get you out of here, because the U.S. Open is next week. Um, and, and I don't think Phil's going to be there. What, what, time, time takes time. Um, and time is on his side. What yeah. do you think? You know, <clears throat> time's on his side to return to the game. But time's not on his side in terms of playing, <clears throat> sorry, in the places we've always seen him play, right? Because, because he is over 50 now. Man, you know, you can't tell the history of this 25-year running golf, 30 years, without the story of Phil Mickelson. Um, you know, you, you don't want to say that he's Watson to Jack, but in some ways he is right <clears throat> because of an incredible career that is overshadowed by one of the greatest careers of all time. Um, you know, singularly Mickelson stands in very unique and rare air, uh, with not just the majors, but also with the way he played, um, you know, the, the the whole Ford commercial campaign of what will Phil do next? You know that that, that was true. I mean, you 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 play golf with somebody and they hit a bad tee shot, a squirrely second, hit some ridiculous recovery shot, make a putt for par. It's a Mickelson par, it just is. It will be for the rest of my life. It's a Phil par. It's a Phil four. You know, um, he he just did that, and I I I hate that. I hate that he's not able to – I hate that he wasn't able to enjoy Southern Hills. Yeah. Um, for what he has done for the game for 30 years. He's given us 30 years of thrills and excitement. Uh, so for him, I hate that he wasn't able to enjoy what should have been one of the great victory laps um, off of you know one of those unbelievable major championships. I thought we were going to have it with Watson at the Open in 09. I thought we were going to have one of those older guys with – a major championship for the ages and it came so close and Stuart Sink won the playoff, but Mickelson had that and he had that week. And um, it's the crowning moment of his career then to be followed by all of this. Um, you know, Gary, there was a weird part of me that thought Phil was going to show up at the champions dinner, mm. uh, duck in, apologize to the champions or say his piece, whatever that is. Right. Apologize or not. Right. Um, and then leave and then say to Ben Crenshaw, Ben, you, who's become the spokesman yes. of the dinner, is it, Ben, you can tell everybody that I was here and I apologize to the guys. And I just don't want to cause any extra attention and duck out. I, I thought that may have happened. I, I don't know where the next reentry point is going to be or if he goes live golf and doubles down and just makes this uh, the, the way he's going to go. I, I don't know where it's going to go. Um, I, I hope Phil finds happiness and I hope he's able to enjoy golf as part of, um, you know, the rest of his life because he's given us a lot of great things. It doesn't mean I don't, I don't agree, disagree. It doesn't mean that I agree with sure. the things that ha he has said regarding what's going on now with live golf and Saudis, but that's okay. We can disagree. You can make your choices. That's fine. I, I just, I just know he's given us a lot of uh, good golf memories, and I don't wish ill on him. I just uh, hope that it works out. For him. 
U.S. Open uh, at the Country Club, there's a generation of golfers who don't really know much about it. Uh, they, you know, you, you got the, the dimple heads who may have watched the U.S. Amateur with Matt Fitzpatrick winning. Uh, but what do you think the story is next week? I think the story is going to be the new generation of golfer. Because, Gary, since we got into this, this has changed. I remember, you know, doing some real rudimentary math by hand. Okay, how old was so-and-so when he won this major? The, the winners of major championships were the guys in their 30s. You know, when he was 28, 29, he's too young to win. Give him time, right? And now that has changed so much. It's like every guy who's walked out, you know, in his 20s can win. There's a fearlessness. The Tiger era, I thought, would bring more minorities to golf. It has instead brought more athletes more size and more uh in a good way boldness of youth they're not intimidated by history they're ready to make it and i love that about this era of golf so i don't put it past anybody who's played in one u.s open before to go out and win and go out and make birdies but the story to me is going to be that generation of golf mm. meets a classic with narrow fairways tall rough and tough greens i think it's going to be fascinating because it's going to be frustrating because until we get there we don't know but i get the sense bomb and gouge which is overused i don't think that's going to do it i think it's going to be hard i mean no matter how far you hit it i think it's gonna be hard to get it close and it's going to be hard when you have a bunch of eight nine foot par putts at the u.s open We've seen over the years, you don't win a U.S. Open like that, you know, if it's a traditional setup. So I think it's going to feel more like the U.S. Opens we were raised on. And I think it's kind of fun. I think for that one week a year, it is fun. Oftentimes, it separates to the best players in the world. And I do get the sense that the best shot, not the best players, but the best shot makers and the best managers of their game are going to be the ones who succeed. And now when we see a Matthew Fitzpatrick and how he plays, mm. and now you put that together with the country club and how it can be set up. Okay. That makes sense. Now uh, that makes sense that he had, he had success around, around that golf course. So I'm fascinated to see that. I, I, I love what the U S open represents. I love that we get to celebrate Curtis in 1988, the first of his back-to-back. -back. I love that we get to celebrate Crenshaw and Justin and all the 99 Ryder Cuppers. Um, it's been a long time to be back at one of the true classics. So this is going to be one of those fun weeks. And Boston always puts on a great show for a big sporting event. So no, no, doubt ab no doubt about it. I hope the people who live at 246 Clyde Street leave for the week because the number of people <laughs> who are going to knock on their door, um, yes. they, they need to leave. And I don't, yeah. I hate it for them, but that's just, I mean, I believe me, the last time I was there, what did I do? I stopped right in front of the house, uh, which course. is right across the street from the 17th hole. All right, let how me get- selfies, yeah. How many selfies will be taken with that? <laughs> hey, hey, look, Francis, Francis's place. Exactly. That'd be cool. All right, let me get you out of here. Five quick questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the first one, the broadcaster with the best delivery all time, who is it? Wow, Summerall because of just Summerall, I loved Jack Buck. I, I, that's not a, that's not a knock. That's a compliment to Joe. You know, take it away. I used to love listening to Jack Buck on the radio call uh, Monday night football or call baseball playoffs, but that Summerall delivery, you know, murder. She wrote quick, <laughs> quick, quick, quick run for you since you're a nerd. One, one Super Bowl 
the halftime entertainment was Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. <laughs> and to hear Pat Summerall say, and musical guest, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. <laughs> this is one of my favorites of all time. So, Summerall. Uh, and, he, and he'd grown up a giant fan. He, he did. It felt like he did two-thirds of their games every season Absolutely. when they were great. All right. Uh, the venue you'd love to call a game from that you haven't. Wrigley. Wrigley. I've never done baseball. I hope to do a baseball game at some point along the way here. I love Wrigley. The bleachers sitting across the street, Murphy's, the walk around the park, the the neighborhood, everything. Uh, you know, grew up a New Yorker and love New York sports and all that. But uh, Wrigley and Fenway are two of the coolest places. And I grew up a National League guy, even though I'm an American League guy now as a Tigers fan, but Wrigley would be the one. Okay. I would imagine now with the Peacock package that that's you, you got to make that happen. I mean, uh, who knows? Who knows? At some some point down the line, we try to figure out something. But I'd love to get a baseball game in at some point in my career. For okay, sure. I love the game. The active athlete who will crush it in broadcasting. Well, we've already taken Justin Thomas out of that equation. Any right? sport? So, any sport? Um, wow, good one trying to limit it to football because those are the guys who I really have a good feel for. Can't say Brady because he's already spoken for yes. uh, in so many ways. Man, that's a good one. Oh, oh, I got it. Steph Curry. Wow. Exceptional on TV. I did a couple of interviews with him, live shot on Today Show at the Ryder Cup last year. Incredible on TV. I listened to his interview after game two of the finals. Um, and you just come off from playing the game. He sat most of the back end of that game. But his answers to Lisa Salters were just so thoughtful and really helped me understand what I had just seen in a different way. Uh, and his way about him, too, and because he's so liked and everybody likes being around Steph, Steph Curry. Okay. Who is the best sports fan in the golf community? Man, uh, gosh, it was couples. JT's got to be right up there. But I used to love, I used to love going up to the range and Couples and LaCava are up there. And, you know, Freddie, every ball hit was a chance to have two stories told by somebody else. I mean, <laughs> you look at Couples clubs, and they're worn out because nobody – I mean, because ain't nobody. For me, if you tell me who makes perfect contact all the time, it was Fred Couples. Right, right, right. And I'd love to go say, Joe LaCava, great sports fan, Couples, great sports fans. I'd love to go talk to them. And Freddie, like, you know, this is in the early 2000s maybe, like, See the Dallas Stars game last night? Man, what's going on with them? Like, we watched everything, saw everything, knew everything. You had to be ready with what was going on in sports. So um, it, it's a little old school of an answer, but Couples was right there. No, right you know, I, I did the Bobcat <clears throat> studio for three seasons, including the first one in the new arena. He's at opening night against the Celtics. So I come out of the studio, and I'm sitting on the baseline, and he sits down next to me. And he wants to talk about Adam Morrison. I'm like, what do you what do you know about Adam Morrison? Everything. Everything. He's great. He's great. I love him. All love right. Him, love him, love him. Last thing, the most underrated athlete who played for one of your teams, a guy you loved who wasn't necessarily a star. Exceptional question. Exceptional, exceptional question. Okay. It wasn't necessarily a star. So I'm <clears throat> I'm I'm gonna go. I'm going to go with my alma mater with Syracuse. I'm going to tell you that Don McPherson got robbed of a Heisman trophy from Tim Brown. No, 
Love Notre Dame. Love calling Notre Dame games. <laughs> love the Notre Dame. Don McPherson got right. He was such a good quarterback. He was such a good quarterback. And uh, took Syracuse to an undefeated season. Uh, was never really appreciated for how unique he, he ran a very unique offense in an exceptional way total east coast football nerd but you said one of my teams no doubt and i've i've outgrown i've outgrown my mets my jets i outgrew all of that i live in detroit i like to see my family happy when the detroit teams win but because it covered a bunch of sports i've just become kind of neutered to rooting for teams but syracuse is my team as our friend mr van pelt says we're all from somewhere and Syracuse will oh, forever be my team. I love the school. Uh, and that's the one guy who I always felt like, man, America should have known more about him. So no, that's, that's a guy. great one. I'll tell you who I wrote down, Wesley Walker. I, I <laughs> Unbelievable with vision in one eye. Yes. How, how incredible a receiver he was. Number 85 for the Jets with Richard Todd throwing him. Teams that were good enough to get into playoffs or be on the edge, but were never good enough to win the big game, including disastrous uh, Mark Gastineau penalty, double overtime against Cleveland playoff loss. Oh, God. We could go Gary. on forever. We just had a, we had a good conversation. I was feeling really good about life. And he just took me back to one of the worst losses of, uh, of my childhood. No, but that's what Jets fans do. They take themselves back. I mentioned a great player, and you go to the dark places. Great, greatest, greatest book Greatest book that I wanted to write that I never wrote that Mark Canizero from the New York Post yeah. published awful lot. I think Mark did write it. It's the worst jet losses of all time. You can oh, write a wow. book just on the, the just the crushing jet losses, and they add to it, have added to it every year, every year, every year. But like I said, like I said to my friends who are Lions fans, I always say to my friends who are Jets fans, the Bengals got to the Super Bowl this year. There is hope. Yeah, no question. I'll leave you with this. Uh, it's my yeah. favorite line about you. It was after Troon, and you're on the flight coming home. And you're sitting across the aisle from Dan Hicks, and you stood up, and Dan said, and now he's going to fly the plane. <laughs> he can do anything. Uh, that's my man. I love Hicksy. He's the, he's the best, and uh, working with him has been cool, and it's been a lot of fun. I, I, uh, I love that NBC golf team and look forward to seeing them at the open, both opens here coming up this summer. It's a great part of my summer. Listen, uh, I, I value the time immensely. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you soon enough. Uh, more than valuing the time, I value the friendship with you, my friend. I'm so happy for you. Success with this. This is a fun listen, uh, present company excluded. These are enjoyable to listen to. So keep up the great work and I look forward to see you soon, Gary. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate Mike Tirico. He's the standard. He's right there with Nance, who's been on this show, and, and Dan Hicks. They're just great at what they do, and he's a, he's a sports nerd, just like I am, watching the games and those people who are calling the games, and he's as good as anybody. And I certainly thank everybody out there watching and listening to this Five Clubs conversation. Next week, it's U.S. Open week. It's also Father's Day week as well. Father's Day is a week from Sunday. Bill Haas, Jay Haas, one of the great father-sons in the history of golf, one of the great golf families, they will be with me next week right here. Have a great week, everybody.